Welcome back to School of Calisthenics, another podcast with Tim and Jacko. And this week, who are we joined by, Jacko? We have Nick Littlehales, who is a sleep expert. And we are talking, well, we, we talk all things sleep, but we go even, it, it opens up an even broader topic, um, which goes in nicely with some of the other podcasts we had recently around our overall health, wellness and happiness. So um, there's some, some gems in here around little things that you can do to try and improve uh, your sleep and how to, to, to make some real changes in how you're going to feel as a result of it. The interesting one for me around this was that it's actually booking the trend of what society would believe is the right thing. And that's something which we see consistent in training and nutrition, but understanding actually what the body needs, how the body's going to work, and that actually how the world that we've created around us doesn't necessarily fit to have an optimized performance in, in those areas, particularly around sleep. And Nick gives us some really useful little takeaways that you can start to put into place understanding who you are what you're like what your tendencies are what your chronotypes are and um, and how you can structure your day around that so uh, for you sit back relax and enjoy for Nick Littlehales on the Scorecast Next podcast for me and Tim we are off for a siesta that'll make sense in a little bit roll the jingle So, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thank you for, for, for spending some time with us and with the listeners to uh, to delve into uh, into sleep a little bit further and the importance of it and just getting your insight as as you call as your call sort of an elite sports sleep coach. Um, if you could just for people to to understand where you're coming from, uh, the types of institutions and people you've been working with, um, and then we'll, we'll delve further into into this topic that we're really excited about. Okay, been doing this quite a lot over the last few years, but um, try and keep it to the to the key points. Um, you know, just loved sports as a teenager. Was hoping to, you know, get into that environment. But we're talking the the late seventies, early eighties now, which is a completely different planet to where we are today. I um, didn't really make it. Fell into what's called the furniture industry. Um, Back in the early 80s, um, I ended up being a sales representative. For those who don't know that, it's somebody who travels around in a car selling wares to retailers. It was for a company called Slumberland Beds. They were a very big sort of sleeping comfort brand. Um, But it was really just to pay the mortgage to bring up a a young family. I wasn't necessarily too interested in it at all, being a a sports person. But uh, I think a lot of the things you learn being a, an individual trying to make it into sport, particularly in those days, um, it was a very independent-driven type of occupation. You know, what you put in is what you got out. So I, I suppose I just applied that to that particular job. Um, so in a very short space of time, I became their international sales and marketing director. Um, it was always about sort of logical thinking. Yeah. Uh, it was a big brand. So I was traveling the world trying to innovate and draw the correlation between sleep and products. Uh, Worked with a lot of professors of sleep from the clinical side, wandered around the world because we had licensees all over the place, you know, studying and watching how people slept and different occupations and all that sort of stuff. Um, We didn't have a, a UK sleep council in the UK. There wasn't any around the world, really. So... A few of us got together and created one. 
and I was the chairman of that for a while in the UK, trying to provide more information uh, about sleep. And it was really very much to do with just the lack of education uh, at any level about this, you know, what you might class the third health and well-being pillar of a human being. It was just something that was taken for granted, not a performance criteria. It's just something we do at the end of the day when there's nothing left to do. And I sort of innovated a few things in product sides, in things and all sorts of stuff. And I suppose just reached a particular point where I'd done a lot of very good things uh, in the industry as an individual and as an industry, but sort of decided that, you know, I was bashing my head up against the brick wall um, and decided I was going to go off and do something else. So I was, my UK office was in Oldham, Manchester in the UK. Um, I handed in my notice. I had to work a 12-month contract as a director of the business. So I was sort of twiddling my thumbs, employing people to take over my roles and, and uh, wandering off to do something else. And during that particular time, uh, the local football club, Oldham Athletic, came knocking on the door because we were a big business in the area, looking for some money to sponsor their, their kit, their shirts. And um, I just thought, why not? You know, uh, a lot of the workforce uh, particularly supported Oldham Athletic as a local club. So it'd be nice for the workforce to see their company name on the front of Oldham Athletic shirts. And oh, so it wasn't that wasn't that they were interested in anything to do with understanding sleep best. They just well, they were just right, looking just for looking a, for somebody who can write a check. It's interesting, out, yeah. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but interesting how this the story falls together. Well, it's sort of like um, mid uh, mid to late nineties, and it was a time when sort of sponsorship of shirts was very much in its infancy but it was very restricted to certain types of companies. You know, it was, not a, it was not a thing that everybody was doing because, you know, football kits, a bit like cricket kits, they were sort of, you know, you didn't have that sort of thing on the fronts of shirts. Um, but suddenly the media sort of go, oh, Oldham Athletic got Slumberland on the front, which is a bedding company, a sleeping company. I mean, what's all that about, you know, all the... We had pictures of all the team all falling asleep in the middle of the park. They're all, you know, wee willy winky hats on and candles all standing in the goals. The media just had a little bit of fun. But what um, would happen, because I was the guy writing out the check, um, I got invited along to some, some football events uh, as, as a sponsor of a football club locally. And that sort of engaged me with the world of football in a very sort of simple way. But um, it sort of started off a conversation that I had with another local football club, which was called Manchester United, and just down the road. And it was sort of like, yes, I was talking to sleepers because they're humans, but I wasn't talking to my industry. So basically, everything that I picked up over the years and learned and studied, um, I could actually have dialogue with that club about these things, um, and they would listen rather than go, oh, Nick, you're crazy. We don't do that in this industry. You know, we try to get our eight hours. We don't eat too late. We try and get our room 16 to 18 degrees, and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm going, well, that doesn't wash for the majority of people. 
Um, so I, you know, wrote to Manchester United. I had a conversation with Alex Ferguson, the manager at the time. Uh, he asked the staff, do you know anything about sleep, recovery, whatever? Um, they said, no, we don't do anything like that, which is not surprising back in the late 90s. Because uh, you sort of had a doctor, a physio, and maybe somebody who you'd classify as being sports science today, but even those words weren't around. Um, but the physio at the time, a guy called Dave Fever, was intrigued in t- from the perspective of he's treating a particular player at the time on a daily basis when they come into the training ground uh, with lower back issues, which is very common. And um, they were doing a lot of things trying to protect this player. Uh, making investments and everything else. And he was just a little bit intrigued and came up with a word, word called dehabilitation. Is while he was rehabilitating this, this player uh, while he was in the training center, when he left the training center and jumped into his low-slung Ferrari and went off, then he came back as if he had been dehabilitating while he was away. So the rehabilitation process did not continue unless it was... So Dave was constantly trying to put things right every day that the player would actually put wrong when he was away. Um, So it was a simple fact because of my competence in the area of of products and things like that. Uh, That was the first step was actually to go and have a look at what the player was doing away from the training center, you know, look at their home, their home environment, and particularly the products that they had chosen. The club didn't choose these products. Uh, It was something him and his wife had chosen in that random way of popping along to a bed shop one afternoon. So there were certain little things that I could see as a designer of product uh, with individual body profiles that we could make some subtle changes. So we did. And that, whilst it didn't solve the lower back issue, of course, it did protect them from going to surgery, which would be the last thing they'd want to do in that area. But also other little things that they were trying to do, they decided they didn't have to do them because there were some benefits from what we'd done. So the dialogue just started. So then we started talking about other things. And and basically, um, around that particular time, it wasn't planned in the slightest. It was just a cause of events. And suddenly Manchester United go and win one of the the most uh, recognized trebles on the planet, whether you like Manchester United or not. Yeah. And in a very dramatic I remember watching the fight, I remember watching Did it. you? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, like, yeah. A, yeah. Well, I'm sort of... I didn't realise it was all down to you. Nah. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was just at the particular time where I was sort of like working out my contract and my company said, yeah. oh, Nick's talking to Manchester United, so what? Um, yeah. It was sort of, I was doing this of my own agenda. And... Uh, suddenly the media just came piling down on Manchester United, trying to find any story they possibly can about this wonderful thing that had just happened. And um, the players at the time, you know, have that recognised title of being the class of 92. Um, And there was a group of pretty much, you know, UK-born, bred British, English players who, you know, we weren't on social media, we weren't doing all sorts of stuff. Um, so we started having dialogue with those people about products and about environments. And then I'd also start mentioning things like chronotypes and 
polyphasic sleeping, and maybe that would be something we could use inside of the world of sport. And they're going, what did you just say, Nick? <laughs> and I'm going, well, yeah, I don't know. So some of those guys played for the England squad, and the England squad was sort of, in those, it was uh, the World Cup in France, 1998. Um, they were sort of talking to the staff about this guy who comes in and talks to us about sleep. And the physio who was shared with Arsenal and also the England squad, a guy called Gary Lewin, became interested and fascinated. Uh, so he got in touch. Um, at that particular time, a new manager at Arsenal was arriving called Arsene Wenger, who had what would be classed as a very different approach to managing a squad uh, in so many different ways. It was by some thought to be a little bit crazy, wouldn't last. And, you know, he's now retired and I'm still doing it. But he actually wanted to get me in to talk to the first team squad at Arsenal. And it was that particular point where I said, well, what do you want me to talk to him about? And I said, well, talk to him about what you talked about to the players. And I had to sort of sit down and go, hang on a minute, I'm going to have a room of multicultural players, unlike Manchester United, players from all around the world, different languages, different cultures. Um, I've got to talk to them about sleep and maybe how that could benefit them. So I literally had to sit down and get the pen and paper out and decide actually how I was going to construct a conference-style conference with a first-team squad. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that's really interesting, Nick, is that um, how sometimes like just the, the timing of some of these events and how things were changing that then presented an opportunity to you. So someone like, you know, someone like um, Wenger that came in and was looking for any small um, improvements they can make in various different areas. So looked into this and the fact that the link you had at Manchester United and the physio there was actually on board with that. And it's presented this opportunity that there's now, it's quite common. People talk about marginal gains all the time. And actually yeah. for those people that are listening, not only it's something that's, um, that are just, just if, if we said we were like a general fitness enthusiast that, um, people are in, in elite sport are looking for those marginal gains and that filters then down also though into myself who is no longer playing a professional sport I just I'm training for for the love of it um, but I still want to look to find ways that I can improve my train but not just my training my, my life and how and my whole sort of wellness of how how good I feel and uh, I guess what would be really good would be for um a little bit of detail for people around um, just on a basic level, just to start with around like what is in terms of sleep, what is, you know, what is needed for somebody and, and why is that important in relation to like, so if we haven't got X, Y, and Z, this is what's going to happen and that people might be able to relate with that and be able to go, well, actually, you know what? I don't have those things and that is exactly how I feel. And I didn't actually think it was anything to do with myself or just opening up the, the thought process that it could be something about the sleep. And then we'll start to look at how we can try and all make some positive changes. There is a process going on on our planet every day. It's never changed and will never change. And if it does, we won't be here. It's called the sun rising and setting 
and a change of light, dark, and temperature. That is completely synchronized into the human brain and all its bodily functions. With an internal clock we have in our brain and little clocks in every cell and organ in our body. And we were completely synchronized to this process. And we still are. But over the decades and centuries, we've been moving further and further away from that process. So it's almost a time when you need to look back and realize what are the important factors about our relationship with the sunrise and sunset process. So that is one of the things where you try to, not in a complicated way, but just have a much better understanding of how important it is for you to be able to have a better relationship with that process to get the benefits from it and to minimize the side effects from being so far away from it. Nick, I'm just going to ask, amazing. Thanks for all that information and just really gives us a context for the discussion. I'm just going to throw a little bit of a, a curveball in as we go through, um, just to get your thoughts on it. It probably fits here better than, than later on. I used to work as a scuba diving instructor in, in Zanzibar and the local boat, the local guys in the village, <laughs> as you do. Yeah, standard. <laughs> had a great time. Um, but we, the, the boat was run by the local guys from the local village. And when I got there, I understood that um, in Swahili time or Zanzibari time, it was six hours further on than what my clock said because yeah. the guy, at the start of the day, their first hour of the day was when the sun came up. Yeah. Um, and then they went to bed when the sun went down because most of the guys didn't have electricity in their, in their villages. Okay. Is that more of like a natural, sort of? is that how the human sleep patterns were originally sort of um, structured rather than what we have now when we have all of the, the opportunity to stay up later, work longer because we, we literally have the infrastructure to support it? It's exactly that, you know, when you, when you do travel around the world like you've done there, um, I was experiencing all these things. You've got north, north and southern hemispheres, you've got different continent, continents, you've different cultures and all sorts of things. And, you, you know, if you're up in Finland, your relationship with light and dark is very significantly different to it would be, you know, if you're in Nottingham in the UK. So you sort of have to put all that into context, don't you? And what it meant was that, I started to, to look um, at what might that really mean. And so I, first of all, educated myself into what could be, what could be significant about that process. And, you know, in simple terms, it's sort of, I'm outside all the time. When the sun rises, it brings the high energy light, blue light. Uh, it goes into the light receptors into my pineal gland, it triggers a hormone called serotonin, which many will be familiar with. The serotonin tells my brain to unsuppress everything and make me active and happy and motivated to take advantage of the daylight. So off I go. As we hit midday, we've had a significant exposure to that level of light, which is way, way, way above what we get inside our homes and office spaces and training centers way, way much more. And when we get to about midday, it's a, a natural point for us to take some time out. We take a little bit of time out, which classifies itself as siesta, nap or whatever. And then we go off to maximize the rest of the daylight hours because we're hunter-gatherers. We've got to go and make use of the light because it's going to disappear, as you pointed out just now. And Whilst we're moving towards the back end as the sun is shifting towards sunset, 
then because that diminished light is starting to affect our light receptors and pineal gland and bodily functions, we start to produce the other hormone called melatonin. And the melatonin overrides the serotonin and tells the brain to suppress everything. And that is to start shutting down mood, motivation, activity, bodily functions to get to a point where you can enter a sleep state. The sun's gone away. We might keep um, a little bit of active time with the fire, amber light. Starlight doesn't affect us. Um, the moonlight doesn't affect us because it's too far away. Uh, amber light, red light, yellow light doesn't affect this process. So literally, although we're sitting around the fire in darkness, we're starting to be overridden by melatonin. So we it's hundred percent easy to fall in front, fall asleep in front of a fire. I know that yeah, from first yeah. experience. It's so a great place to it's fall kind asleep of like, because we don't have the dominating serotonin that's disappeared now. Now we're in a position where we've got no drive to be active. So basically, you will then fall into a sleep state. Now, while you're in that sleep state, you're not in control of it, right? All the other health and well-being pillars, you're making mental choices, physical choices, and actually doing them and feeling the benefits or the non-benefits from it. But with sleep, once you enter sleep, your brain's in control. So the brain that's is really then, that's really interesting. I've never thought of it like that. That you know, like if uh, in terms of what we eat for our nutrition and drink and all these other things that are actually decisions that we consciously make, um, you don't yeah you don't decide. Well, I can decide sort of to take a nap, but like you say, once it's once you're asleep, you're not in control of anything. Certainly not my dreams. Hi everyone, it's Tim and Jacko here. We just wanted to interrupt the podcast very briefly just to tell you a little bit about the virtual classroom because we were so excited about everything that's going on in there that it's just too good not to share with you. We've put the best of everything we've got and everything we know into the virtual classroom to help you work towards your goals in bodyweight training and calisthenics. So by becoming a member of the virtual classroom, you can get access to specific classrooms which are going to take you towards your calisthenics goals, whether that be a muscle-up, handstand, human flag, all the major movements are covered, and we're going to walk you through step-by-step with specialized weekly training programs and self-assessments which are going to make sure you never get stuck and you know exactly what to do every time you want to train. On top of the movement-specific classrooms, we also have things like workout of the week. We have follow-along workouts for you to do. We have challenges inside of playtime. We also host live webinars answering your specific questions and doing problem-solving alongside with you. And there's also a video library of all the video tutorials and exercises that we have. And alongside that, there is a, a, a community of people in there that are helping support each other towards their goals and their training and helping with that process being alongside me and Tim inside the virtual classroom and all the students as well. So if you want to become part of what is possibly the greatest bodyweight and calisthenics training resource in the world, at least we think so, then all you need to do is swing by schoolofcalisthenics.com and follow the links through to the virtual classroom. When you get there, you're going to find a number of different membership packages to choose from. We've got specific subscriptions for beginners. And if you want everything that we've got, you can join a monthly or an annual subscription plan and you are going to get the best of everything that we've got, which is going to help you to do whatever it is that you want to achieve in calisthenics.
If you have just one specific goal, you can buy the individual classroom for that movement for a one-time fee and get unlimited access to all of the workouts and the programs to follow inside that classroom. We are now fully aware that you're probably not even listening to this anymore because you've already gone to schoolofcalisthenics.com to check out the virtual classroom. But if you still need a little bit more convincing, wondering if it's for you or not, we've got a completely free eight-week beginner's guide which is going to take you from absolute basics and give you an exposure to all of the exciting things that Calisthenics has to offer. And also on our monthly full subscription, you can get seven days just to check it out, no contracts. If you don't like it, you don't have to stay, but you probably will. And we look forward to seeing you in the virtual classroom very soon. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, you, you can't sit down on the sofa and go, I'm, done a, I'm, I'm now doing 10 kilometers running. You're not. You know, <laughs> you've actually got to get up, buy some equipment, put some trainers on, do some exercise and actually run. You know, it's a, it's a thing you've got to do. But with sleep, you just fall into it. So whilst the sun has gone away, it's on its way it's going away from you, so you move into more diminished light into full darkness. And then it's on its way back. So once you roll past around 12 o'clock at night, because we've put a clock on it, the sun doesn't have a clock, it just goes. We put a 24-hour clock on it. So once you start shifting beyond 12 o'clock, it's actually coming back. So whilst we're outside, we're in a sleep state, we start rolling past 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, the sun is coming back, the light is starting to change, the temperature is starting to change, and suddenly we reach a point where it tips over the horizon. Back then, the serotonin starts overriding the melatonin. We become active, everything's on suppressed, and off we go. And that happens every day. Every day. That is what happened. And as you described it where you were, so as I wandered around, and said, like, well, wow, you know, that is not where we are today. So how important is it? So you start to then look at the relationship with light, the relationship with these two hormones, the relationship with what we should be doing at certain times through that 24-hour process to release some of the benefits of being active humans. We also, it opens up the conversation about all the things that we look at, visualization, taking information in, uh, putting information out, um, what we eat, how we hydrate and fuel up, is actually, if that's going in to a body that's not sort of like time-wise synchronized to this natural process, then maybe we're not processing this stuff as we think we are. And I think in the early days of change, it wasn't so apparent to us but one of the significant points along that journey was up until we invented electric light, whether you think that's the 1500s, 1700s, but certainly in the 1700s, it started to hit streets. So before we had gaslight and candlelight, things like that, and firelight, which, which sort of maintained the process, but then suddenly we brought electric light and artificial light. And that was the point where humans started to decide to just sleep in one block at night. So when anybody, you know, anybody listening to this is, you know, tap it in your browser, look at circadian rhythms, look at some images. Uh, they're not made up. It's about the brain and bodily functions and the sun going around our planet. And suddenly you get a real sort of insight 
into prior to electric light coming along, the human being never tried to sleep in a monophasic block, one block just at night. It would actually sleep and recover in what's called a polyphasic approach. So you can actually see that there's four major sleep-wake cycles for the human being right up to the point of electric light. They were all shorter periods more often, not just one block. And so at that particular point, we started to just try and get all of our sort of what we class as sleep recovery, just nocturnally. And then as you shift, uh, as you said there earlier, you then start to realize that there was another key factor, which was daylight saving time, that was not created for human performance. That was in the very sad war years, for other reasons, is that certain countries adopted daylight saving time, certain countries adopted daylight saving time and went back to their normal time zone, and certain countries have never done it. So when you look at a picture of the planet, you can see that there's humans recovering all over that planet, but some of them are affected by daylight saving time, some of them are not. So again, our relationship, and almost what I sort of class it is the desynchronization process, is that suddenly we have to deal with quite significant seasonal changes with our relationship with light and dark. And I think it's that whole process of just suddenly this is stuff that you should actually be looking at in schooling. It should be something that your parents are very much aware of um, as to how they bring up their children in those formative years of the balance between this process and understanding of it. Not in any scientific way. It's just how much time do they spend outside and how much to the time do they spend inside. And that should have been going on a long time ago. So the reason why we talk about it so significantly today, like shut your tech down and don't do this and don't do that, is because we're all in a sort of catch-up process of not really knowing how to start the educational process around one of the biggest health and well-being factors, pillars, sleep. It should be the first thing you do that drives everything else that you do, but it's always been at the end and forgotten about. Yeah, it reminds me, or it brings in a sort of bigger picture of, uh, we've had a, a functional um, medicine practitioner or functional doctor on the podcast recently talking about like sort of nutrition and, and wellness from a, a rounded view and obviously not the detail around sleep of this, but one thing around that's in line around sort of nutrition being the fact that, as you said, with sleep, well, how we've been, or just how our lives are now in the modern day and how they have been for a period of time, whether it's to do with sleep, whether it's to do with sedentary, whether it's to do with not being outside as much, whether it's to do with what we're now actually eating. It's like the tiniest fraction of how long mankind has been around. And there's a lot of things that we, that we do now day to day as absolute sort of standard that um, on all those areas that is not how we're sort of designed or supposed to be. And it's having a negative impact on all of our health. And that's why I guess these things are so important. So if, um, if I think that's, a, that's um, a point that gets raised all the time, you know, it's, it's, it's within sports science, you sort of like yeah. from nutrition, and everything else. And you still hear the comment, well, you know, a good, healthy, balanced approach in moderation to everything. 
and you know there's various areas you can go down with nutrition and exercise and all sorts of things as you both fully aware but that sort of principle um of being more synchronized with the process and like i say it's it's been developing and every generation has challenges for sure um yeah. significant ones so it's not we're not saying the challenges we have now are any greater or any different to maybe past generations but what we do know is they're having more of a a paradigm shift approach on our behavioral approach so it's not sort of developing new things like we've now got a car to drive or we can do this we can do that or we've been challenged with the war years whatever it it's this is shifting our behavior on an almost instant daily basis and it's been gathering such a pace over the last two decades that you know it's only people it's not only people i don't mean it like that but it's it's i am fully aware of a period of time in my life when i had loads of recovery breaks i spent a lot of time outside because there was nothing to do inside so when you sort of look at those parameters it's sort of like well was i actually as a child as a teenager with my parents more aligned with this process we weren't doing it on purpose through knowledge and awareness it's just because the dynamics around us gave us and promoted this opportunity to be more synchronized so when you start removing those things and making me more inside than outside and being more affected by other things that we weren't before then you do have to ask the question when we should be the healthiest fittest most knowledgeable human population on this planet why in the background are we talking about this so much because we've got so many issues some fairly significant um going on in the background with human beings that you've got to sort of say wow it probably is time that we all get together understand this better not just punt out you know get your 8 hours don't eat too late da 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 because yeah. i don't know anybody on this planet who gets a full block of 8 hours every night 365 a year so if you tell everybody that they've got to get 8 hours a day and if you then provide research that says if you only get 6 you're going to end up with dementia and parkinsons and and everything your world's going to fall apart you are just you know you're just out you just had it is that how can you tell that to a surgeon to an athlete to a student to anybody who works multi schedules has to sleep in different times of that 24 hour clock has to deal with different challenges all the time so what they do is they just ignore it so what you asked me before is how important is sleep to us it's fundamental to the human 24 hour process but there are different ways to achieve the levels of recovery that you require and if you understand them you can apply them to your life and make sure your life is protected and reveal yourself yeah. more often 
Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, so let's just go into that then. With uh, if so- someone's listening and they're on board, they're like, okay, I understand. Uh, I-, I agree with what you've said, and I-, I know that things are a little bit out of whack. And um, you've mentioned there that getting sleep in not in one big block. What's the what's your sort of what two or three big take home sort of messages or practical tips or if someone wants to make a change with their with their sleep and take control of that um what would you what would be your big things to to sort of it's the, get to grips with first of all it's the top three out of the seven i, I called it the r90 technique because i worked in football the, the length of a football game was 90 minutes um i knew from a clinical environment that you would measure uh, sleep and phases and stages over a 90-minute period and benchmark it to the next 90-minute period. And five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. What we know is that eight hours, 30-odd percent of the 24-hour clock, we need to be in recovery. And that's not a, you know, we don't argue with that at all. But we need to redefine it for everybody. So the first thing is to tap in your browser circadian rhythms and just look at some of those images which is about a 24-hour rolling clock the second one is everybody understands this some people are in between us but they used to be called owls and larks we call them amers and pmers there's morning types and night timers and i knew from day one that i'm a morning type i'm a lark you know i wake early i'm fully active i'm starving it's the best part of my day But I also knew people that would be dragging themselves out of bed with minutes to go because their chronotype was a nighttime chronotype. So while I'm trying to get up early and do my day, they don't want to. But in the evening, they become second wind and become active. They want to be actually doing things at 12 o'clock at night. I don't. So when you look at chronotypes, it's just a genetic twist. It's about the relationship of producing melatonin and serotonin and the sun going around our planet it's how we produce those hormones in different levels at different times and once you understand your chronotype then that's a great place to start to realize how many things every day are actually counterintuitive to your chronotype and how you can try to minimize their impact and there's also things every day that happens that are positive to your chronotype to take full advantage of them So you get a better understanding. And the key thing there is that I've seen a lot of research over the years. There's still a lot more to be done. But I work with lots of organizations and big groups of people, even students and children at school. And pretty much I would suggest that more like 70% of the population are nighttime chronotypes, not morning chronotypes. And that means that the majority of people are actually starting their day in what's called an AMS world. Because we do try to start our day with this sunrise process, but the majority of people are starting it too early. And as we've shifted over time, we've just made that even earlier and earlier. So the dynamics of your personal chronotype, not only with everybody else around you, with your partners, with children, uh, with your boss, All those things, just that understanding can have an almost game-changing effect on how you prepare yourself to deal with those things that are not out of your control, but you can protect yourself. And the core one then is you get to 
this polyphasic approach. And if you start with your natural chronotype wait time and then chop your 24 hours up into 90-minute slots, cycles, you create a series of timings. And from those timings, it gives you points where you can do things. And it particularly identifies this nice subconscious process that my consistent wait time, my chronotype wait time is 6.30. I pick 6.30 or 6 o'clock because I don't have to think about it. I don't want another routine in my life. I just want pattern and rhythm and harmony with the natural process. I chop my day up. So the first 90 minutes of my day till 8 o'clock is called post-sleep. And I put a lot of importance on what I need to do to help my brain to become fully active in that first part of my day. And then literally every 90 minutes of the day, I'm thinking about little distracted breaks, one or two minutes. I also use midday, which we call a CRP, a controlled recovery period, a nap or siesta. I can come into that in a little bit more depth, guys, but just in this particular case, I use a nice little shorter cycle, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, to get a bit of vacant mind space, just to have another little bit of recovery as part of my process. Also, early evening, before we get into that evening period, because we're now working on a different clock, is I have another one there, which is just an opportunity to protect my evening, to make sure I can take full advantage of it, but I also want to help my brain get ready for a much longer period of sleep called nocturnal. And I sleep between 12.30 and 6.30, which is four cycles. It's six hours. It's a shorter period. It's more defined. But I start my day at the same time, and I think about it throughout the day. So my eight hours a day is built up of six hours nocturnally, but then the first 90 minutes, I class that as recovery. Little breaks, every opportunity I can, every 90 minutes, there's another. A little 30-minute cycle, for me, as a morning chronotype, is always early evening to protect my evening between about 4 or 5 o'clock. So my overall recovery is actually greater than eight hours, but it's not done in just one block. And that means when I do present myself to a longer period of, say, four 90-minute cycles all the way through, I'm more likely to sleep all the way through it. I'm not going to wake so much. I've got more time to get rid of everything that's gone on in my day. So when I just present myself to sleep, the brain will give me the best it possibly can because it's all about rhythm, harmony, and patterns. And those are the three. You start with those, and your tomorrow will start to change almost with immediate effect. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm, I'm also a, a morning person. I, if I let myself wake up naturally, it can be anything from 5.30, maybe sometimes I've got a little boy who's two years old, which makes it oh, confuse yeah, things over the last <laughs> couple of years. But um, but, if he's, but he's sleeping pretty well now, but I'll normally wake up sort of naturally 6, 6.30. Um, I can work, if I wake up earlier than that, I can crack on in the morning. And my general, I've been self-employed for like 11 years and over the yeah. years of different sort of times in my life, I can easily sort of fit into that schedule of going, well, I'm going to like work in the morning, work hard, and I can easily do 15, 20 minutes and wake up feeling great Um, and then crack on the afternoon the same in the the evening I was just sort of um, thinking around how that sort of applies for people in the the world so obviously we want to move towards an approach like this but probably somewhere away from um, organisations being okay with people going to the sleep room or recovery room for a nap at lunchtime and then maybe towards later on in the day and and obviously that's going to shift depending on whether someone's a a morning or nighttime person for someone who works in sort of a a standard um, (coughs) let's say eight and a half hour 
the day or whatever it is, it, it runs to the clock that we've manufactured around how things should happen. What are the, what are the key wins that those people could do? Because they're almost pushed into a, an eight hour block of sleep just by default of not really being having opportunity to sleep during the day. Or is that, am I on the wrong I think, sort of spectrum? I think that's there? the, you know, <laughs> just jumping back a little bit, you know, without the educational process, without these conversations, first of all, you've got a young child your child came into this world sleeping polyphasically, right? They didn't actually sleep for the first year, but... Yeah, well, that's what I mean. They have a a polyphasic approach that's driven by the formative years. You know, they basically sleep, wake up, poo, wee, fuel up and go and do it again, right? And the other... So parents try to get them onto a monophasic approach as soon as they possibly can. We're actually we should be thinking about this polyphasic approach because when children come along, we can just adapt and go with them and everything else. But there's, there's, there's a whole new podcast. So the best thing is most people are aware that human beings fall asleep behind the wheel of a car on a motorway or an autobahn at 50 or 70 miles an hour. Now, that's a micro-sleep. In, a, in an area that could be fatal to you. Just nonsense to do it. But what it shows you is, is that under certain circumstances, visualization, time of day, circadian rhythms, 24-hour process, that even in that environment, your brain will just go, hey, I'm going to put you to sleep. And you go, you can't stop it, right? You can open the windows, you can drink as much caffeine as you want, but unless you take notice of the signs on the road, the next thing you find is you're up the back end of a lorry, right? In the worst case scenario. So what you do is understand that you're not trying to sleep. You're trying to do things throughout your day that will enable your brain to do this for you if you just put yourself in the right place at the right time. But without that understanding, suddenly you've got an organization that suddenly picks up on everybody should be napping. So they develop a recovery room, they put the whale noises in there, they paint everything lilac and lavender smells, and they go, all of you need to go in there and have a break, or they buy recovery pods, $5,000 a time. And you go, hang on a minute, you don't need all of that, because that's actually counterproductive. All you want is actually a better understanding that how you can get a recovery when you're not actually trying to sleep. And when you start to look at people's habits throughout the day, there's loads of opportunities to do these things. It's just we're constantly pushing through these boundaries. We're constantly trying to make ourselves so active when actually in anybody's routine, and that's what us as coaches do, you just go, so you've got a train journey home between 5 and 6.30, back home from Central City, London, whatever. And on there, you're reading books and emailing and doing all sorts of things. Then you get home and fight with the kids and your family and try to get so much done and then realize there's only so many hours left before you've got to get up and come back into work and do it again. Why don't you use that as your recovery break? Because we can all fall asleep on a train. It's the right time of day. If you take that approach, that's where my CRP is. And you get on and you do those things and you get your little 30 minutes, 26 minutes, whatever of mind space, vacant stuff, whatever. 
when you get off at the other end, you enjoy your evening better, it's more productive, it's less challenging, and you've got a much better approach to your whole day. So that's a nap. Yes. Um, and you sort of just remind people of, of what it is. So everybody goes, well, I, I can't go to sleep during the day. I said, well, how many times have you left a meeting in the graveyard slot? Consciously. With your bosses talking and your coaches talking and everybody's just looking at you and some of you have just drifted. Right? You're still in the room consciously. And it's sort of, you really try to get down to those nuts and bolts of how, how important your ability to be able to create these little recovery moments throughout your 24-hour process. So we start to look at, we want five, we want five cycles a day. We want to focus the nocturnal sleep cycles into a little bit of a shorter period to, to try and keep that a little bit more focused. We want to reveal the 24-7 process and the world that keeps changing. And we also want to be able to help you understand how you as an individual can create these little recovery breaks without anybody else knowing. That's one of the key factors. You don't go running around telling people that, you know, I'm going for a nap. No, 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 no. It's lots of things like, you know, we've now got, you know, a long time ago, suddenly, you know, two liters of bottles of water started to appear. And we started to hydrate like mad, which wasn't the, the concept before. And then suddenly that drifts into open plan offices and, and computers and desks. And now we eat our breakfast and we drink water at our desks. And we've got everything there to remain in this sort of little cocoon of this new world that we've created. Well, you just go put the water back in the fridge. So every 90 minutes, you've got a little thing that just says, get up. Have a little distracted break for your brain, one or two minutes, and just wander there, do that, and then come back. And that is part of your sleep. Really? Yes, because it's just helping. Even every opportunity you've got to, to just step outside, even if it's for a few minutes, take it. So if you've started batch cooking and bringing your lunch into work every day so you don't have to leave the office, you don't have to leave the desk. Well, I would suggest that maybe sometimes during the course of your week, we plan that we go and fetch lunch or we leave it in the car so we have to go and fetch it or we leave things over there so we have to go and grab them. We just do things. We turn left instead of right because left is where we've always turned and it means we remain indoors under artificial light. But if you just turned right and you went outside, walked down, and then came back into the building, it just took two minutes. It takes two minutes to turn left to get to the same place. It takes two minutes to do that one. But that one just exposed yourself, just like as if you were wandering around on this planet under the shade of the trees and things like that. You're not exposed to the full power of the sun, but actually you're just getting a little break. And that's part of your process. And even while you're outside, that is having a noise. It's a bit like, you know, the device has got 2% charge in it. So the first thing that happens, you start looking for a socket. It's the most important thing.
right? Things have changed now because we've got our own chargers and I can put my phone on top of yours and it'll charge it. But the principle was that when we got to a certain point, we needed to have electricity and a socket because if that phone dies, we're out of here. So that becomes complete focus. And if you realized that by turning right instead of left throughout your day, is that you are now charging your brain up with the most natural charger out there called blue light. If you knew that those just a couple of minutes out there is going to make sure that the rest of your day and how you then, when you present yourself to more blockers, that your brain's going to love that, is suddenly you realize how important that is. And once you change yeah. that mindset, which is not easy, guys, right? It's not easy. But... Once you change that mindset, you see people just making subtle changes yeah. in everything what's, they do. You know what's I, I love the, the, the we're talking now. Yes, you're talking about sleep, but it's it's part of a bigger bigger picture. And some of the key things there are that some of those things are are are, are simpler than others that people can put into place straight away. Like you said getting just just taking two minutes to get outside put the make sure that your um where you're putting your drink or your food means that you leave your desk or leave a normal place and just break up that day and those little things are going to add up that as you said that the the difficult part of it um, and we just have to each individually take ownership of this is we have to proactively make a decision. And as you said, that, that word <laughs> mindset to actually go, I'm going to try to start making some of these changes. And I think something we learned uh, recently with a podcast with um, Phil Learning that I really liked, he was talking about progressive overload and applying that principle of progressive overload, which might be in a training environment, putting a, a tiny, you know, one kilo on, on extra on a, on a weight bar or one more rep, but actually going progressive overload for, uh, for any changes you're going to make. We don't necessarily have to change everything at once because sometimes that tees us up to, uh, for failure and actually go in, make one little change tomorrow, see how that feels. Um, try and maintain that, then make another little change, then another little change. And I guess what you're saying as well is we need to find out individually within, within that framework, but find out individually what does work for you as an individual, what works with your, your chronotype and making sure that you, um, that you are taking ownership of looking after yourself. And this is, this is one thing within that, but actually it's a, it's also part of a bigger picture that all fits in together. Um, that's going to help improve, um, our health, our wellness, our performance and, and, and that's what, and ultimately, probably ultimately how you feel about yourself and your happiness, which is, that's what it's all about at the end of the day. I think so. It, it, you don't want anybody to get the concept that we've got to start doing this, this new regime. Um, it's actually so much more simpler. It, it, with that little bit of understanding, if you put it in context yeah. with your child, um, you know, at some point, uh, their chronotype is going to reveal themselves to you if you're now knowledge. Um, and you can spot things, you know. And so what you're not going to do is apply certain things to that particular child, which is sort of like, well, actually, it's much better to do things with my child, you know, in late evening um, than rather first thing in the morning. Uh, because I'm, I'm just adopting this, this thing I've always learned. So you don't shout at them to get them up and go to school because of everything else. And it, it, it's that really good understanding that 
if you've got a pm and an am and we're outside in that natural process we talked about before the am is reacting to the sunlight shift and producing serotonin like mad and that's why you are rocking to be active and hungry and stimulated to do stuff the pm who's lying next door to you outside is not reacting to that light shift as quickly. It's about a one to two hour phase delay. So they're still in melatonin land. So they're not driven to jump up and be active. It's not something they're choosing not to do. It's just they don't have the right hormone level on suppressing everything. So it's kind of me and you are up at 6.30 rocking, but the other person is more like eight o'clock. So once you get that understanding, and everybody who's listening to this, is that the PM needs help. You can't change the AM's world. You know, the kids have got to go to school, we've got to go to work, we've got to go to the gym, we've got to do this. You can't change everything around you. But what you do realize is, is that if you are lying in bed, you live 30 minutes away from the gym or your office, and you're still lying in bed, hitting the snooze button at 27 minutes past eight, just waiting for the last minute before you have to get out and you're skipping breakfast and then you're getting to work and you've not been exposed to the natural recharger called sunlight, whether it's outside or inside your bedroom, inside your environment, then basically you're starting your day with your brain only half lit up. So everything that you look at, everything that you listen to, everything you put in your mouth and everything else is going to be with a half lit up brain. Now I'm making that really simplistic, right? But that is actually it. You know, <laughs> it's a, you know, outside this morning for me and you as AMers, there's like nearly a hundred thousand lux out there, which is the way you measure light, right? Hundred thousand, 74,000. But in most internal spaces, even CrossFit gyms, you know, office spaces, fluorescent tubes, lit everywhere, the level of light there is barely 100 to two, 300 lux. So to actually start your day properly before you even hydrate or even bowel and bladder or even think about engaging with tech or even think about doing any sort of exercise or whatever, you need to be exposed to that level of light, whether it's outside or whether it's inside. And once you know that the light inside is nowhere near as powerful as it is outside, then your relationship with turning left or right starts to make some real sense because it's about that under and over exposure to light. And again, that's another podcast, but I mean, that's really, you know, you've got two kids, Let's keep it real as simple. You've got Jane and Johnny, and you can't get your one kid out of bed, but the other one's up, got the uniform on, scoffing breakfast, can't ready to get going, but you're dragging the other one into the world. They miss breakfast, they grab something off you, they go to work, and they both start schooling. And whatever the teachers are telling, maybe 70% of that room is just not going in. You know, it's just not going in, but the AMers are loving it. And yet the lessons in the afternoon may be slightly different. And it's had some significant changes in workforces. 
you know, if you know your boss is an AMA, you know that your boss will be in work for seven o'clock, fully hydrated, bowels open, got plenty of fuel inside of them, really excited about what's going on. And when you get to your environment, your office environment, your boss, you know, is going to be driving it like that. So you cannot afford to just wake up in the dark, drag yourself to that space, because you are going to be dominated by somebody else's chronotype. And yet, if you know that, and we can put some little practical changes into the start of your day, now you are ready for it. Yeah. No, thank you, Nick. Sorry, Nick. Um, thank you so much for sort of opening up this this conversation. Obviously, you're um, extremely passionate about it. And as we just sort of draw things into a close, I just really like we're really encouraged by um, what you said. Picking up things that um, we can do. I've written down in my notebook that I, like I need to get outside. Particularly, like at the moment, it's so sunny and. Um, it's, it's such a nice thing to actually do for like first thing in the morning. There's no sort of excuse of why I couldn't do that. And we just really hope that everyone that has been, been listening along has been encouraged to look at what they, what they can do to improve their sleep and, and take ownership of, of that and how it's going to fit into the bigger picture of them uh, improving their overall health. Um, and I know and what they're all going to say, sorry to interject, you know, is it's dark outside, it's cold, it's raining. Uh, it's winter, it's this, I can't get outside, I can't do this. Well, all you do is understand that if that's how your life is made up, then you bring the light inside. And you can use light therapy tools, very simple things, just to make sure that your synchronization with the outside world is kept in place. So just because you know it's summer and spring and stuff like that, and it's easier to do it, um, some of us live in a daylight saving time world and we know it's going to change. Seasonal affective disorder, our habits and behaviors change because of the light socket. So all you need to understand, which we all do, is yes, ideally, you take it free and naturally outside as much as you can in a balanced way. But if it's not there, don't ignore it. Because if you ignore it, then you're just back in that world again. So what can you do inside to help that process? All right. So Nick, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show, spending some time and imparting your knowledge. It's been really, as Jacko said, really useful for us to get a deeper understanding. And I, for one, I'm feeling far less guilty and ashamed about my inclination for an afternoon nap <laughs> than I have done before. But I think just as well, like the encouragement of one of the great things we like about calisthenics is it means we can train outdoors and, and just seek getting people to, to sort of put some of these in, these habits in place and uh, yeah some really useful stuff which hopefully is going to have a big impact on people's performance whether that's at work or sport recovery whatever it is and let's just get that that, that initial big pillar of sleep right in our life and then enjoy what, what we can reap the benefits from that so there's not much else to say but thanks so much Nick for coming on and until next week class dismissed